Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a teaching series in the Sermon on the Mount called The Politics of Jesus, where we're learning how to live the upside-down way of Jesus' kingdom. Thanks for joining us. The word politics means the activities associated with the governance of a country or kingdom. In other words, it simply means the way people living in groups make decisions and live those decisions out as a community. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is a picture of the kingdom of God, an invitation to life in community, which is often upside down to the kingdom of this world. Well, good morning, everybody. So good to gather with you. It is a joy to be together. Whether you're in the room or joining us online, we're thankful that you're with us. I I am excited to teach this morning. As I studied this week, I just had a renewed sense of the power of the Word of God to instruct us in how to live the way of Jesus. And I believe that can happen this morning as we open His Word together. A teacher was testing the children in her Sunday school class one day, and she wanted to see if they understood the concept of getting into heaven. So she asked them, if I sold my house and my car, if I had a big garage sale and I gave all my money to the church, would I get into heaven? And the kids shouted, no. And so she continued, if I cleaned the, cleaned the church every day, I mowed the church grounds and kept everything nice and tidy, would that get me into heaven? And again, the, the kindergartner said, no. And she started feeling pretty good about herself and she thought, they're getting it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go for more. If I was kind to animals and I gave candy to all the kids and I loved my husband faithfully, would that get me into heaven? And once again, all the kids shouted, no. So she's bursting with pride at this moment, right? She's, she's gotten through to them and she says, then how can I get into heaven? And a five-year-old in the back of the room says, you gotta be dead. And she just deflated, and the five-year-old missed the point. Right, he just, he missed the point. And today we're going to continue talking together about a teaching of Jesus, and he wants to make sure his followers don't miss the point of what it means to follow him. If you're following in your notes, we're in a series called The Politics of Jesus, and we're learning to live the upside-down way of Jesus' kingdom. It's upside down. So far in this series, we've heard that Jesus' kingdom is much different than the kingdoms of this world. He overturns and redefines what it means to be blessed. We, we learn the postures of the kingdom, how, how we can recognize if we're living them and if others are living them. We, we realize we're poor in spirit. We can't save ourselves. We mourn over our sin. We are pure in heart. We're peacemakers. And last week, Steve began a three-week stretch of messages that show us what life in the kingdom looks like. And just as Jesus redefined what it means to be blessed, he now begins to redefine righteousness. Jesus says that people in his kingdom will hunger and thirst for righteousness. But what is it? What, What is righteousness? If you're following in your notes, it is a right standing with God. We hunger and we thirst for that. And in Jesus' day, the the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders were teaching that external obedience to the law, to the Old Testament, is what made you righteous. Righteousness was something you could earn. 
But, but Steve taught last week the law was never intended to save us or make us righteous. And Jesus says that his kingdom isn't a kingdom of earning, it's a kingdom of receiving. We can't rely on our ability to fulfill the law. We must humbly admit that we have no way to become righteous on our own. We simply receive the gift of grace that Jesus offers. He offers us his righteousness by trusting in what he accomplished on the cross for the forgiveness of our sin. That's the only way to have a right standing with God. And now Jesus says, once you realized you're blessed, and once you have received God's free gift of righteousness, you will want to live differently because your heart has changed. It's an inside-out righteousness. You'll no longer be concerned with just looking good or playing the part or impressing others. We'll be transformed from the inside out to live a better way, the way of Jesus. And that's why if you're following in your notes, righteousness has everything to do with the heart has everything to do with our hearts. And so we're in a section in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus shares six, you have heard it said, but I say to you statements. And these were specific commands from the law in the Old Testament that had been misinterpreted and misused. And specifically, they had been reduced down to their bare minimum. Like, how, how much of this do I really need to keep to earn my righteousness? And Jesus proceeds to show that what these commands actually mean and how no one can keep them without the Savior's help. And he raises the bar on these things, but he doesn't raise the bar to discourage us, but rather to call us up, to call us up to a better way of living with his help. And so today we're going to talk about the next three, but I say to you statements by Jesus. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles or your devices to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. And this is a message where I really believe it will be helpful for you to have God's word open in whatever way you have it open to take some notes and circle words and, and track with us. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. We're going to start there. Jesus said these words, you have heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. We're going to pause right there. We're going to pause right there. If you're following in your notes, Jesus quotes the seventh of the 10 commandments and he upholds the seriousness of adultery. This command was found in Exodus 20, 14 and Deuteronomy 5, 18. It was a well-known command and it was plain and simple, right? A married person is not to have a sexual relationship with anyone other than his or her spouse. Plain and simple. To give you a little context to this command, it was so serious that in the Old Testament, it was punishable by death. And there's a story in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, where a woman caught in adultery is ready to be killed by the religious leaders before Jesus steps in. So it shows us the seriousness of adultery even into the New Testament. 
It was one of the laws from the Old Testament that was brought forward into the New Testament. And it's still a serious sin today. Let me give you just a few reasons why. First, marriage is a reflection of the relationship between God and his people. And when there is adultery, the marriage covenant that was entered into with God and with your spouse has been broken. That's a big deal. Second, sex is a beautiful good gift that God gave us to be enjoyed inside a covenant marriage relationship between a man and a woman. It is a beautiful gift. Sometimes in the past, the church has taught that it's not good or it shouldn't be talked about, but it is a beautiful, good gift that God has given us. But when we take the gift of sex and share that outside of the marriage relationship, it's taking the good gift that God gave us and twisting it to meet our own needs. It's a good gift. And then third, there are practical reasons why any culture with a moral conscience takes the sin of adultery seriously. It divides family and friends. It does not treat someone created in the image of God with dignity and respect or the way of Jesus. It is, it is secretive and dishonest. It lives in the dark. It destroys the adulterer. It erodes character and integrity and even physical health. And it hurts everyone involved, including the children, deeply. Proverbs 6.32 puts it this way. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. So as we get going, let me stop right here and ask, is there a response you need to make to Jesus' instruction on adultery? I want to invite you to turn your notes over. We're going to flip back and forth a few times today. I want to share a couple responses that you might want to make. First, if you have committed adultery in the past, confess, repent, and receive forgiveness. Nothing is too far from the forgiveness of God. Maybe you've never asked for forgiveness for this. Today can be the day where you confess that to him, turn from your sin, and experience freedom from guilt and shame. If you're currently committing adultery, realize the seriousness of your sin and stop. Stop. I pray you realize the seriousness of your sin that you're engaging in and the damage you are doing. Today, you can be set free from the bondage of living in the dark and looking over your shoulder of who's going to catch you. Ask God to give you the strength to stop and turn from your sin. And if you have not struggled with this and never committed adultery, then pray. There's an author that helped me tremendously. He said, don't say that could never happen to me. Pray, protect me, God, and protect my marriage. So pray that God would protect your marriage. Is there a step that Jesus is asking you to take today? If there is, don't delay obedience. Act on it. So I want to invite you to turn your notes back over because everything we've talked about so far is about the external act of adultery. And then Jesus drops this spiritual bomb on the crowd and to us, and he raises the bar on righteousness, and he goes after the heart. 
Would you read this with me? It's in the first gray box on your notes. These are the words of Jesus. He says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So while our text is directed at males, it, 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 Jesus is saying nobody's off the hook here. He would say every person who looks at another person lustfully has already committed adultery in their heart. And if you're following in your notes, lust is a craving or desire, usually of sexual nature. And Jesus says adultery, it's not just the physical act. It's the craving or desire for another person that begins in your heart. And this is so serious because it reduces and uses people and it reduces them to objects. It takes someone created in the image of God with value and dignity and reduces them to an object that pleases you. It is completely self-centered. And lust is interested only in our own gratification. It treats other people as things to be exploited. And when we're done with that person or thing, we move on to another object. It's progressive and addictive. And I want to be very careful and specific with words here because I, I think they're helpful as we look at what Jesus says closely. In the original Greek, you may even want to write this out to the side of your notes. I think this is really important. In the original Greek, it says, anyone who keeps on looking in order to lust. I'll say that again. Anyone who keeps on looking in order to lust. And that means... This is why it's important. There is a difference between looking and looking in order to lust. Stay, stay with me here, right? We are sexual beings and God made us that way. And we already said that is good. There is nothing inherently wrong with sexual desire. But again, we frequently take something good God made and we twist it. Being sexual beings is a wonderful capacity. And as human beings, we have the ability to admire beauty and we look. We look, we notice beauty. So there's a difference between maybe even not willful looking and admiring beauty and taking a second look or a third look or an extended look, what the Bible would call a gaze that excites the sexual imagination. It, in, it, it engages your heart. It excites the sexual imagination and you engage in an act reserved for your spouse. That is lusting in order, looking in order to lust. And this lust is not limited to people we see on the street, in the gym, in the store, or at work. Lust is fostered by pornography, erotic books, plays, films, magazines, and the king of porn today, the internet. I just listened to a podcast yesterday that said 50% of all data that goes through tubes and out through the internet is pornography. 50%. Man, this is a problem. And Jesus offers life. 
And just so we get to the point of the seriousness of this, Jesus says, and you can follow along in your Bibles, beginning in verse 29, he says, and if your right eye causes you to fall into sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better that you lose a part of your body than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to fall into sin, chop it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose a part of your body than that your whole body go to hell. Full stop. Here's what we need to know. Verses 29 and 30 are not literal. They're not literal. If Jesus meant this literally, all of us next week would show up with one eye and missing limbs, right? This, this is not talking about mutilation and cutting off limbs. Jesus is using hyperbole here to make a very important point. And the point he is making, if you're following in your notes, is take drastic measures before there are drastic consequences. Sinful lust will lead you down a dead-end road. It will not deliver what it promises. You think it will make you happy and satisfy you, and it will always, 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 always leave you feeling empty, alone, disappointed, and dirty. Always. And Jesus says it will lead to hell. We've used this quote around here a lot, but it bears repeating if you're following in your notes. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, cost you more than you want to pay, and hurt God and others more than words can say. When Jeff taught on this subject in the past, there's a phrase he used that I still remember to this day. I think about it and bring it up. Often he said, play it out. Play it out. You go ahead and you play that out in your head. Where does that lust in your heart lead? Play that all the way out. Where does it, where does it lead? How will it hurt others? How will it hurt yourself? How will it hurt your kids? How will it hurt your relationship with God? Play that out. So take whatever steps you must to deal with lust. And if you're stuck in that sin, I want to share some responses that you can make to Jesus' instruction. I want to invite you to flip your notes over again. But hear me say this before we walk through these. There is hope. There is hope. It doesn't always have to be this way. If you think in your mind, I don't think there's any way I can get out of this, there is. And if you think in your mind, well, that's just who I am, it's not. There is hope in Jesus. And so maybe one of your responses today is you need to start practicing self-control. If you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And did you know you now have the power to say no to sin? Like you can really say no with the Holy Spirit's help. A man in the Bible named Job practiced this in the book named after him in chapter 31, verse 1. He said these words, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I look at a young woman? Job was practicing self-control. So let me ask you, what steps or boundaries do you need to put in place? What situations or devices do you need to get rid of? And what time of day are you most susceptible to lust? Like name these things and take action. Practice self-control. Here's another, practice life together. And this may be the hardest one of all. 
Strongholds lose power when they're brought into the light. The light of Jesus can disinfect. And I know around this sin, there is more shame and guilt and you feel like you're in bondage and you're in prison and there's no way to get out. And I just wanna tell you, you're not gonna do it on your own. You need godly friends with whom you can share your struggles and who can hold you accountable and who have permission to ask you how you're doing. James 5.16 says, confess your sin to one another and pray together so that you may be healed. You can't go it alone. Practice life together. And then practice praying and renewing your mind. Ask God to do what you're helpless to do to renew your mind and your heart, and then spend time with Jesus. Fill your mind with God's word. Because hear, hear me say this, saying no to lust is not enough. We must fight the false promises of lust with the true promises of Jesus. We've got to fill our minds with the truth of his word. So I'm going to say this several times today in the next few minutes, but if you struggle with this, if you struggle with lust or adultery that we were just talking about, we so badly want you to experience the abundant life that Jesus offers. You don't have to do this alone. We would love to have a conversation with you and provide you with the resources you need or hook you up with the right people to experience freedom and live the way of Jesus. We long for you to experience that. So at any point today, you can text. It's gonna be on the screen. It's also on the bottom of your notes. You can text CHHELP to 314-624-0406 or email us. One of the most piercing questions that Jesus asked people is, what do you want? If your answer today is, I want help, then text us or email us so we can help. You can't do it alone. We long that there would be person after person today that would ask for help. And so we're gonna move on to verse 31 and 32, and it's not surprising that the discussion on divorce immediately follows this teaching on adultery and lust. And so just so you know, when we were talking about how to break up this text, I said to Jeff and Steve, you know, adultery and lust isn't quite heavy enough. I'd really like to keep going and talk about divorce. And they were totally cool with that. Totally, totally cool. So, so here we go. Verse 31. Jesus' words, he says, it was said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. And then read this with me in the second gray box. These are the words of Jesus. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual unfaithfulness, forces her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So let, let me just name this. The mere mention of the word divorce is painful. And there are people in this room that have experienced that. You've been deeply wounded by broken marriages and a discussion on the subject brings up memories and feelings you would rather forget. I get it, I get it. But I'm thankful we get to talk about this because Jesus has such incredible instruction and the words of Jesus lead to life. 
So the controversy of divorce in the New Testament centered over the interpretation of a phrase in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. This is what Jesus is addressing in verse 31 when he mentions the certificate of divorce. I want to put Deuteronomy 24, 1 on the screen and just leave it up there for a minute so we can see what Jesus is talking about. Deuteronomy says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce. So this is what Jesus is talking about here in our text because by the time of Jesus, I want you to see these phrases, the phrases becomes displeasing to him and finds something indecent about her had become a hot topic to discuss. And it led to two different schools of thought. One school of thought said divorce should be limited to adultery. And the other group said it could be for any and all reasons that you were unpleased with your wife, including if she burns your toast. I'm not kidding. They wrote that in. If she burns your toast, you can give her a certificate of divorce. And the culture was incredibly harsh to women. And Jesus actually protects women with what he says here. And Jesus answers, he chooses, a decide, he chooses a side in the debate. And he says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual unfaithfulness forces her to commit adultery. If you're following in your notes, Jesus cites sexual immorality as grounds for divorce and remarriage. The Greek word here is porneia, which is a more general term for sexual behaviors that express infidelity to the marriage covenant. So Jesus grants divorce for a general reason, sexual sins. Sexual sins. And I want to say this, and you can read more about this in Matthew 19. We just don't have time to look at that text today. Jesus permits divorce for sexual immorality, but he doesn't command divorce. It's a really important distinction. God's ideal, if you're called to marriage, and not everybody is, is that one man and one woman would enter into a covenant relationship that lasts a lifetime. That's his ideal. And his ideal for marriages that are struggling or where the covenant has been broken, his ideal would be reconciliation. So if you're in a relationship and there's been sexual immorality, it does not automatically mean that you have to pursue divorce but it does mean that you have biblical grounds to pursue divorce. And in addition, as we make our way through the New Testament, we see if you're following in your notes, God permits divorce and remarriage in cases of abandonment and abuse. In 1 Corinthians 7, the apostle Paul addresses the issue of an unbelieving spouse leaving and says, let it be so. You do not need to stay married to someone who abandons the covenant relationship. And that may be to a number of different factors. They just don't want to be married anymore. There's addictions, whatever it might be. If they abandon the relationship, you can, you have grounds for divorce and remarriage. And throughout scripture, abuse in all its forms is condemned. We see God's concern for the oppressed and the hurting. And if you're married to someone who abuses you, Please know, the church has taught this in the past sometimes that you need to stay together for life, but please know you are not biblically obligated to stay married to your abuser. 
God sees your suffering, and he does not require you to stay bound to a person who harms you. That's not God's character, his heart, or his desire for his children. So just like we stopped and we added some practical guidance with adultery and lust, I want to ask you to turn your notes back over. Is there a response you need to make to Jesus' instruction? If you're here and you're a divorced follower of Jesus who was divorced and or remarried on unbiblical grounds, ask God for forgiveness. Don't get divorced from your current spouse. Be faithful to your spouse. But our God is a gracious and forgiving God who immediately and fully forgives confessed sin. And if you need to ask forgiveness from the one you hurt and it's appropriate and you wouldn't be doing more damage, then maybe you want to take that brave step to relating rightly. Have you ever asked for forgiveness if you find yourself in that position? If you're in a healthy marriage, ask God to help you be a faithful spouse today and into the future until separated by death. Sarah and I had this conversation a long time ago, and it was really helpful, and we think of it today when we have fights. When we first entered into marriage, we said, we're never going to talk about divorce. It's not an option. It's not on the table. We will work through this, whatever it is. We'll go to counseling. We'll get help. It's not an option. Can you make that covenant if you're in a healthy marriage with your spouse? We're going to work on this. We want to work on this. If you're here and your marriage is hanging by a thread, if it is possible, as followers of Jesus, seek reconciliation. Ask God to soften your heart and ask for help. And if you are trapped in an abusive relationship, leave the relationship immediately, get somewhere safe, and get help. Let me say this again. If your marriage is struggling or if you're in an abusive relationship, We long so badly for you to experience the abundant life that Jesus offers. You don't have to do this alone. We would love to have a conversation with you and direct you to the resources that might help you experience freedom. At any point today, I'm going to put the number back on the screen. You can text CHHELP to the number or email us and we can help you. Take a step today if that's what Jesus is asking you to do. Again, by talking about this, Jesus brings us back to the heart because if we're honest, we live in a society that aligns more with divorce over burnt toast than people who live the upside down way of Jesus' kingdom and fight for our marriages. Let's be people who live the upside down way of Jesus. And we finish this section uh, with Jesus' teaching on vows and oaths, which makes perfect sense to follow up on his teaching on divorce and keeping our commitment that we made to God and our spouse. Makes perfect sense. So beginning in verse 33, Jesus says these words. You can follow along in your Bibles or on the screen. Jesus says, again, you have heard it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, Do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. And then would you read this with me in the third grade box on your notes? It says, all you need to say is simply yes or no. 
Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So here's the bottom line if you're following in your notes. Here's what Jesus is saying. Be a man or woman of your word. Be a man or woman of your word. We live in a world filled with lies. And Jesus is saying, in my upside down kingdom, be a person of your word. Help help me out here. How many of you remember the familiar saying growing up, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Already at a young age, children are subtly taught that they need to make an extreme oath to emphasize that they are being 100% honest, which infers there are other times when we blur the lines between honesty and dishonesty, right? And Jesus goes to the heart again. He says, we don't need to make external vows. Like, I promise or I swear I'll do this. Because as citizens of his kingdom, our words should be trustworthy. Our five-year-old was watching a show just this last week, and he had never said this before, but he started walking around the house saying, I swear, mom, I swear I'll go pick up my room. I I swear I'll eat dinner. And all of a sudden we were like, buddy, we don't talk like that. Just say, okay, yes, I'll go pick up my room. We don't need to say, I swear, I promise I'll do that. Jesus says, just use yes and no. Be people of our word. And in Jesus' upside down kingdom, we're people of our word in big things like business deals and honest day's work for an honest day's pay. It's paying someone back when we owe them money. And it applies to little things. So when somebody says, will you pray for me? And you say yes. Your yes is an oath that God holds you accountable to. He takes our yes and no that seriously. Or when we tell our children we're going to do something with them, we keep our word. First, we keep our word because they will never forget it, and they will never let us stop thinking about it. But we also keep our word because our yes is as binding as if we had taken an oath. And it's because in Jesus' upside-down kingdom, we're people of our word. And our word is trustworthy. And this, has, this can make such an impact to our community, right? Our integrity as followers of Jesus can make all the difference in a dying world. It's a way we practice. Jeff taught about this as we live as salt and light by keeping our word. So how are you doing with keeping your word? What step is Jesus asking you to take today? and being a trustworthy person of your word. Hopefully what you have heard today is not, I, I pray everybody, I pray what you heard, have heard is not, I will try to be better. I don't want anyone to miss the point. Like that five-year-old in the Sunday school class. This is not about trying harder. It's about living out our identities as followers of Jesus. We're new creations with new hearts. And I said this as we began. Once we have received God's free gift of righteousness, we'll want to live differently because our heart has been changed. 
We're no longer just concerned with what people think or looking good. We will begin to be transformed from the inside out to live a better way, the way of Jesus. So what I want to ask you to do in the next several minutes before we take communion together is to self-assess. How are you doing in these areas? Adultery, lust, oath-keeping, marriage, divorce. Is there a step Jesus is asking you to take today? Where do you need help? The question I want to leave us with, if you're following in your notes, is what heart work is Jesus inviting me into? What heart work is he inviting you into? And I'll say it again, let's not be slow to obey. If he is speaking to us, let's act immediately and deal with these things. So we want to give you the gift of just several minutes of considering what the Lord is saying to you and asking you to do today. And then we'll close in prayer together. read this prayer together on the screen. Oh Lord, forgive us for missing the point. Forgive us for not living from the inside out. Take away our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, a heart to love you, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.